0: John Raines didn't take his guns to town on November 17, 1862. As the story goes, he couldn't find his brace cap and ball revolvers in his fine brick home at Rancho Cucamonga. And impatient to be about his business, he climbed aboard his wagon unarmed and set out on the 40 mile trek west to the Pueblo of Los Angeles. He never arrived. 11 days later, his brother-in-law, Robert Carlyle, and a search party spotted buzzards circling in the air above the San Jose hills where San Dimas now lies. They found Rain's wagon, his coat and hat, and in a patch of cactus, his bloated body. It appeared that Raines had been lassoed and dragged off his wagon, then shot five times. Being armed might not have saved him, but sure enough, without those missing revolvers, He never had any chance at all. The murder of the prominent Ranchero was just one strand in a tangled web of greed, ambition, and murder, culminating in a wild shootout at the Bella Union Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. John Raines took a long leap in social status from cowboy to Ranchero, and he did it the old-fashioned way he married the boss's daughter. Reigns hailed from Alabama and moved west to Texas where he served in the Texas Mounted Volunteers, essentially a Texas Ranger, in the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1848. He rode with the likes of David Brown who he would ride with again in California. He was a top hand and proved adept at moving cattle from Sonora to the Great Ranchos of Southern California. David Brown rode briefly under his leadership before murdering a fellow cowboy on his way to being lynched in downtown Los Angeles, as we discussed in a previous podcast. In 1856, Rains was foreman at Rancho Santa Ana del Chino, a massive and magnificent outfit located on 22,000 acres 40 miles east of Los Angeles. This was the domain of one Don Julian, who despite his Spanish moniker, was actually an American named Isaac Williams. The Anglo Ranchero had made his fortune by marrying into the great Californio dynasty, the Lugo family, and he'd become a kind of frontier feudal lord. Our man Horace Bell, the great recounter of early times in Southern California, describes him this way. Don Julian was the most perfect specimen of the frontier gentleman I ever knew. With his corps of Mexican assistants and his village of Indian vassals, this adventurous American was more than a baron, he was a prince and wielded an influence and power more absolute and arbitrary than any of the barons in the Middle Ages. Don Julian had two daughters by his official marriage and several children by Indian women who worked on the rancho, all of which he acknowledged. He doted on his official daughters who were teenagers in 1856 when the great lion sickened and died. He named Stephen Clark Foster the executor of his fabulous estate, which was worth tens of millions of dollars in today's money. You might remember Foster as the mayor of Los Angeles who volunteered to step down to lead the lynching party that strung up David Brown. Foster stepped down as mayor again to devote himself to running the estate. He had to administer trust funds for Don Julian's several acknowledged illegitimate children, and one of the first matters of business that he had to deal with was approving the marriage of heiress Maria Merced Williams, age 17, to one John Rains, cowboy and ranch foreman, age 27. Now, a cynic might find more opportunism than romance in Rain's corp- uh, courtship of Maria Merced. As Bell said, a rancho girl with a thousand or more head of cattle in expectancy and her share of a huge ranch thrown in was a rich catch for one of those matrimonial sharks. So obviously, it was a common practice and a good gig if you could get it. Rains may have been a shark, though observers seem to think that the lovers were really quite smitten with each other. But in any case, Foster wasn't in much of a position to object, because like his patron, Don Julian, he had made his fortune by marrying into the Lugo family. So, John Rains and Maria Merced were wed, and not long after that, her 16-year-old sister, Francisca, married a 27-year-old Kentuckian named Robert Carlyle, who had moved south into the Los Angeles area from the goldfields. Raines and Carlyle operated Rancho Del Chino together for a couple of years, but they were both very ambitious and pushful men and not well-suited to defer to another. Raines decided to cash out his share of the ranch and go independent, and he purchased the 13,000-acre Rancho Cucamonga in the San Gabriel foothills. He planned to run cattle there and on an adjacent property and start a winery, and he built a very fine brick house that is a historic landmark still today. As I mentioned, he he bought a, a portion of another nearby ranch for its grazing lands, and he also... Uh, had an ownership interest in the Bella Union Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. So, this cowboy and ranch foreman was now part of what Angelinos called the chivalry. And this, by the way, was an era that just doted on the medieval romances of Sir Walter Scott. So, young men like to think of themselves as, as knights and they were only partially being ironic about it. The thing is, Reigns had gotten where he got on his wife's money, and the deeds to his properties were solely in his name, which was a clear violation of California law. Dona Merced, as she was known, reportedly asked him many times about this, and he always dodged the question. Partly because of this, the relationship was apparently stormy, but the marriage bed was certainly fruitful. By 1862, the 23-year-old Dona Merced had four children and was pregnant with a fifth. And, by 1862, John Raines was in financial and legal trouble. It cost a bunch of money to be a shiv, and Raines spent very freely to keep up his social status. And it turns out that creating a winery takes longer and costs more than it first appears. And Raines got upside down pretty quickly. And he had to mortgage his properties to stay afloat. Being from Sweet Home, Alabama, by way of Texas, Raines was naturally a Southern Democrat and a prominent one in Los Angeles. He was named a delegate to the fateful Democratic National Convention in Charleston, South Carolina in 1860 as the nation slid inexorably toward the Civil War, and he traveled in style across the continent to get there. Once the Civil War broke out, Reigns provided supplies and a base of operations to the Confederate Los Angeles Mounted Rifles when they rendezvoused at one of his ranch properties, before heading east to the war. And Reigns' vaqueros drove cattle east to feed Confederate armies. Now, Los Angeles was full of southern, southern men and secessionist sentiment, but California as a whole was a Unionist state, and the authorities were pro-Union. So Reigns was under surveillance and threat of arrest by authorities, and he was most likely compelled to declare an oath of loyalty to the Union, although as historian John MacFarrah notes, there's there's no record of that. Um, Farragor believes that one of Rain's neighbors, Don Ramon Carrillo, provided intelligence about Reigns to Union authorities. The intelligence about rains very likely came from ranchero Jose Ramon Carrillo, who worked as a spy for Deputy Provost Marshal J.J. Warner. Don Ramon, a ranchero in his early 40s, had been a prominent defender of the homeland during the American War of Conquest. An English traveler described him as a striking-looking fellow, well-built and muscular, with large brown eyes and an elegantly waxed Van Dyke. That's a style of beard. According to Horace Bell, Don Ramon was a dashing hotspur. In 1847, he married a wealthy widow, Maria Vicenta Sepulveda, and in the 1850s, they purchased Rancho Valle de San Jose, the southern portion of Warner's Ranch, and relocated there. When John Raines moved a large herd of Doña Merced's cattle to his spread at Warner's, he arranged with Don Ramon to oversee their management. That assignment provided Carrillo with an excellent opportunity for gathering intelligence, something Raines realized after his threatened arrest. In the summer of 1862, he confronted Don Ramon. According to Benjamin Hayes, they had high words, and Raines insultingly discharged Carrillo from any further responsibilities for Doña Merced's livestock. So now we have a truly tangled web. The chivalry, and probably the common folk too, were cranking up the rumor mill before Rain's body was even found. They drew the natural conclusion. Rain's wife was angry at him over his financial shenanigans, and probably also for his apparent fondness for a certain notorious brothel in Los Angeles. Don Ramon was angry over their high words and his dismissal. Obviously, they conspired together to murder John Raines, and obviously, Maria Merced and Don Ramon were romantically involved. It's certainly a plausible theory of the crime. District Judge Benjamin Hayes, one of the few truly upright Angelinos and a stickler for the rule of the law, took on the investigation servants at Rancho Cucamonga as well as friends of Rains knew his habits which he apparently didn't bother to conceal and they pointed Haynes Hayes rather to uh, Rains favorite brothel in Sonora town Los Angeles where Hayes interrogated the Indian madam called Samantha and Samantha gave up half a dozen californios she said were involved in Rains murder Don Ramon who was certainly aware of the rumors, turned himself in to Hayes. And after a conference, the Californio convinced the American judge that he could not possibly have committed the crime, and Hayes cut him loose. Authorities arrested one of Samantha's Californios, an hombre named Manuel Ceradel, who shot and wounded a deputy while resisting arrest he told authorities that Ramon Carrillo had paid him $500 to whack rains. So Don Ramon again met with authorities, this time with the district attorney of Los Angeles, and again convinced him that he was innocent of any wrongdoing. He must have been a very persuasive man, because this all looked pretty open and shut, at least as far as circumstantial evidence went. You might be thinking that the gossips had it right and it wasn't unreasonable to think so. But Judge Hayes had a different theory of the crime. He believed Saradel's confession was bogus, and that the whole thing was a put-up job by Rain's brother-in-law, Robert Carlyle. A little far-fetched, perhaps? Maybe Hayes was swayed by the dashing Carrillo and unwilling to countenance the possibility that the lovely Doña Merced could conspire to murder the father of her five children, except that Carlyle's conduct was hardly above suspicion. As a San Bernardino County commissioner, Carlyle had thrown a swanky political soiree during the 11 days that his brother-in-law was missing. A little cold-hearted, perhaps? And then Carlisle and his attorney, Jonathan Scott, and Don Julian's executor, Stephen Foster, T.O. Esteban, rode out to Rancho Cucamonga, confined Doña Merced in the fancy red brick house, and browbeat her for hour upon hour until she granted Carlisle a four-year irrevocable power of attorney and full control of her estate, which they had successfully argued should have been in her name during her marriage. Reportedly, she only gave in when they assured her that Judge Hayes agreed that this was the right thing to do, which was a lie. He never said any such thing. Carlisle, unsurprisingly, treated Dona Merced's assets as his own, and instead of paying down her debts, he sold her cattle and real estate and used the proceeds to build up his own operation and to get diamond studs fixed to his teeth. Quite a fellow, Bob, Carlyle was. His wife, Doña Merced's sister, Doña Francisca, was all in with her husband, and the two sisters became completely and permanently estranged. Now, that was bad, but things were about to get seriously nasty. In December of 1863, Sarah Dell the man who had claimed that uh, Ramon Carrillo had paid him $500 to, to whack Reins, he had been convicted of attempted murder in the shooting of the deputy involved in his arrest. And he was put on a steamer to head off to prison. A lynch mob overpowered Sheriff Tomas Sanchez and strung Saradel up from a yardarm on the steamer. Justice for John Raines, and so forth. Don Ramon figured he might be next on the vigilantes list, so with his characteristic bravery, he paid a visit to the leader of the vigilantes, who he did not identify, and apparently convinced him of his innocence, just as he had done with the DA and with Judge Hayes. For his part, Hayes left the bench and entered private practice and immediately took Dona Merced on as a client and sought to reverse the ruling granting Carlisle power of attorney. Don Ramon remained her champion, which continued to stir the gossip pot, especially when he fell sick while visiting her rancho and had to stay there for several weeks. I know. It sure sounds like they were romantically involved. But there is another possible explanation. Carrillo may have been motivated by a simple desire to thwart Carlyle. If, as Hayes believed, Saradell's confession was a put-up job by Carlyle, the American was clearly trying to implicate Carrillo in the Reigns murder. So maybe Don Ramon was really just trying to mess with a hated adversary. He indicated as much in a letter to his brother. Carlyle cannot conduct the business with as much liberty as he could if I was out of the way, Carrillo wrote. I am satisfied that while awake he thinks of nothing else but a half chance to assassinate me so that he can do with the widow as he sees fit. The danger of assassination was all too real. In April of 1864, a man calling himself Louis Love showed up looking for a long-term lodging at a stage road inn near Rancho Cucamonga, which was operated by a man called Uncle Billy Rubottom, And Rubottom noted that Love didn't seem to have much to do other than to hang out and hunt rabbits. On May 21st of 1864, Don Ramon Carrillo rode past the inn on the stage road. He was on horseback, and riding next to him, in a buggy was Dona Merced and one of her half sisters. Lewis Love suddenly got the urge to go rabbit hunting, and we'll let John Farrager take up the tail. Not long afterward, Ruebottom heard the sound of gunfire. Correa was hit in the back. Dona Merced saw him grasp his chest and slump to the side of his saddle. Don't let him fall, she cried, as the other rider jumped down, caught the wounded man, and lowered him to the ground. Leave this place, Don Ramon exclaimed through clenched teeth, fearing that there would be more shooting. Dona Merced whipped the horses and the buggy took off, leaving Carrillo alone. He struggled to his feet and staggered back to the inn, where he was carried inside, spitting blood. Rubottom proposed sending for a doctor, but Carrillo shook his head. Don't bother, I'm done for, he said. Ruebottom was deeply impressed by the man's stoicism. There came over his face a smile of scorn, he later recalled. He faced the approach of death with bitter gaiety. People had accused him of arranging the murder of John Raines, Carrillo said to Ruebottom, but he was incapable of doing such a thing. If I had been the enemy of John Raines, I would have challenged him face to face. He always prided himself on confronting his enemies. I never did a cowardly act, nor fought a man except face to face, he said, but for all this I am murdered from behind. Rubottom was convinced Carrillo was telling the truth. A man who could talk like that in the presence of death could not be lying, he said. Could he identify the man who shot him, Rubottom asked? He had seen a man fleeing on foot, Carrillo said, but did not recognize him. But that did not concern him for he knew who was responsible. He slipped into unconsciousness, but roused himself just before the end. I am going to die, and I am going to hell, he said. I am going to meet the devil and fight him, and may the best man win. According to Uncle Billy Rubottom, those were Carrillo's last words. Nobody out and out Accused Carlisle of arranging Carrillo's murder. Louis Love fled the jurisdiction. He was arrested in San Francisco and returned to Southern California, where he and a couple of Rancho Cucamonga managers were brought up on charges of conspiracy to kill Carrillo, but a grand jury declined to indict, citing a lack of evidence. The Anglo community and the Californio community had very different views of the violent fallout from the demise of John Raines. The Anglos still saw Dona Merced as a black widow and Don Ramon as her co-conspirator, as described by a dragoon trooper who was stationed in the area to help keep a lid on further violence. Um, And uh, he soaked up a lot of the local gossip. It appears that, from what I can hear, That John Raines married a woman that was half English and half Spanish, and an heiress also, and became a noted man. Report says that he kept one or more spirituals, and that his wife became jealous and took a paramour by the name of Ramon Carrillo, which, of course, caused family trouble, and the husband ordered the paramour to keep away from the house and out of his Eden. The paramour, being possessed of little moral but great animal courage, resolved to put the husband out of the way and have the woman all to himself. So he either directly or indirectly assassinated the for- aforesaid Reigns. Then the friends of Reigns, acting according to the old proverb that is, when you are in Rome, you must do as the Romans do, caused the paramour, Ramon Carrillo, to be assassinated. The Californios saw Don Ramon as a heroic defender of a widow repeatedly victimized by greedy Americans. Don Ramon's brother, Don Julio wrote a letter to the press defending his brother's honor. Ever since the death of John Raines, one Carlyle, whose designs upon the property of Raines have been crossed by my brother in the interest of the widow, has endeavored to blacken the character of my brother and his friends, and has given circulation to the most infamous falsehoods in regard to him. This Carlyle has grown rich and infamous by practicing with superior American cunning upon the too easily and confiding disposition of native Californians, and was now indignant that one intractable subject should be found among those whom he considered the legitimate victims of his rapacity. With her future and that of her children clouded by legal and financial uncertainties and the threat of potential violence directed against her, Doña Merced married Jose Carrillo, A cousin of her murdered protector. He worked as a constable in Los Angeles. In 1865, Benjamin Hayes won his case against Robert Carlyle. A judge ruled that the power of attorney had been acquired through fraud and that a neutral party should be assigned as a receiver to sort out Dona Merced's property and finances and he assigned that role to under sheriff Andrew Jackson King, one of several brothers in a tough, tight-knit Scots-Irish frontier family that had settled in California. Predictably, th- this decision enraged Bob Carlyle, and on July 5, 1865, Carlyle was in the barroom of the Bella Union Hotel during a wedding reception that had drawn all of the chivalry of Los Angeles, and he was drunk as a lord and full of rage when Jack King and Sheriff Tomas Sanchez walked in. Jack King is a damn shit ass, he proclaimed loudly. In Los Angeles in the mid 19th century, calling somebody a shit ass—well, that was the favored fighting words. Sure enough. Jack King's honor was affronted, and he walked up and gave Carlyle a hearty Will Smith slap across the face. Carlyle took a drunken swing at King, and the combatants clinched, and they were broken up by Sheriff Sanchez, and King walked away into the barroom of the Bella Union. Carlyle, true to character, followed a few seconds later and plunged a bowie knife into King's side. The undersheriff had his gun hand badly sliced, so he drew his revolver with his left hand and fired a couple of shots, but missed Carlisle. He didn't hit anybody else either, which is something of a miracle, given the crowd in the bar and in the ballroom. Friends carried King off to a doctor, who got his bleeding stopped and saved his life. Carlisle retired to more drinking in the ballroom. Sheriff Sanchez didn't arrest him. In Los Angeles, in those days, a brawl like that between Carlisle and King was considered a private affair. The sheriff did, however, figure that King's brothers would get word of the Bowie Knife attack and would show up to square accounts, so he stationed himself on the hotel veranda through the morning of July 6th to intercept them. They didn't show, so Sanchez left his post at about noon to get himself a cigar. The King brothers, Frank and Houston, were obviously watching the hotel because as soon as Sanchez left, they walked across Main Street and through the barroom doors, and hell followed with them. Carlisle was still in the barroom, surely still drunk, and airing his many grievances and frustrations to his attorney. Frank King shouted, "'Your time has come,' and leveled his revolver. Carlisle went for his, and the dance with the devil got underway. Each of these men was armed with a cap-and-ball, Civil War-era revolver firing black powder charges, so the barroom would have been instantly filled with sulfurous gun smoke. Houston King took a ball to the chest and went down. Carlisle's attorney was wounded, and so was some unlucky bystander. A horse outside the hotel took a stray shot and fell down dead. Carlyle was shot several times in the chest, but he kept on his feet firing, and Frank King's revolver jammed, probably one of the copper caps that provided ignition to the charges, came off its nipple and bound up the cylinder. It happens. So with his his revolver out of commission, Frank charged Carlisle and started clubbing him savagely over the head with the revolver butt. The brawl spilled out into the street where people and horses panicked, and Sheriff Sanchez turned up and tried to push the struggling men apart, and uh, King was trying to clear his revolver to get off a finishing shot, and and Carlisle managed to raise his revolver with both hands, and shot King through the heart. King fell to his knees and then pitched over on his face, dead in the main street of Los Angeles. His brother Houston, who had been taken out of the fight early, would survive his wound and would later be acquitted of murder because Robert S. Carlisle was shot all to hell and his skull was fractured and he would expire after lying in his own blood for about three hours on a billiard table. The shootout at the Bell Union Hotel was as wild a gunfight as ever took place in the Old West, and it closed the chapter on this villainous swindle surrounding the murder three years before of John Rains. Dona Merced's story did not improve. She was burdened by debts, That she didn't incur, but she couldn't overcome, and she was forced to sell what remained of her property and move into Los Angeles, and she took in laundry to make ends meet. Carlisle's widow, her sister Francisca, did a whole lot better. Um, She married a rich Angelino and lived out her days in comfort in the city, not too far from where her sister labored. And they never reconciled. So, who killed John Raines and set this whole violent tragedy in motion? No one knows. The murder is unsolved. Who do I think killed John Raines? My money is on Carlisle. While circumstantial evidence points at Doña Merced and Don Ramon... Like Judge Hayes, I just don't see it. I believe Carrillo's deathbed testimony to Uncle Billy Rubottom. This was a man who, when he was accused of a crime, rode directly to the accuser and convinced them of his innocence, a judge, a district attorney, and the leader of a crew of vigilantes. I believe him when he said that if he had a quarrel with Reigns, he would have confronted him face-to-face. The bushwhacking ambush, snaking reins off his wagon with a Riata and then shooting him, that has Bob Carlyle's dirty, conniving, shit-ass fingerprints all over it. He didn't do it himself. He paid Saradel to do the dirty deed and then blamed Carrillo, doubtless promising to get his thug off. Then he got up a vigilante crew to lynch the Californio to shut him up. That's my theory of the crime. Of course he was behind Carrillo's assassination and his character is clear in literally backstabbing Jack King. Bob Carlisle was a shit-ass. He got what he had coming to him. But not before wrecking a whole bunch of lives. I have to say that this was one of my very favorite podcasts to put together. It's just so L.A. Noire, circa the 1860s. Uh, I really enjoyed the, the reading and research on it. Uh, I ended up primarily using uh, the work of John MacFaragher in Eternity Street. But there are numerous uh, accounts that you can find online of the John Raines murder. And you know some give different weight to different theories of the crime. Um, but, uh, it was just a a fascinating piece to, to dig into. And, uh, I want to thank the patrons who make it possible for me to continue doing these explorations of frontier mayhem in Los Angeles. That's Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Chris West, Jerry Nunnally, Matthew Eilman, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwertfager. And uh, anyone listening to the podcast who would like to support the uh, continuation of these stories, uh, a link to our Patreon page is in the show notes. And... uh, Sure, do appreciate you listening. We're going to stay in in Los Angeles for uh, a couple more episodes, I think. Um, going to recount a crime that was uh, about the equal in infamy to the Raines murder and the ensuing shootout, um, which was the the killing of Sheriff James Barton in Los Angeles, and then then we'll wrap up with. Uh, the capture of Tiburcio Vasquez um, which was kind of an end of, of the frontier era of crime and justice in Los Angeles um, plan after that is to move on to uh, to King Philip's war in uh, so we'll be <laughs> jumping back a couple of, of centuries to uh, and all the way across the continent to Puritan New England and uh, you know, several of my listeners and, and uh, Frontier Partisans readers have given the, the thumbs up to the idea of taking that on uh, in a similar way that uh, we did with the, uh, Pontiac's War and uh, certainly it's a, it's a watershed moment in American history and worth uh, taking a deep dive on so that will be the, the project for the, the fall and uh, Again, I want to thank everyone who supports the podcast and, and the Frontier Partisans blog. Um, whether you're a patron or a reader or a listener, uh, sure appreciate having you at the Electronic Campfire. And we'll see you down the trail.